0: So we were testing for inherited cancer, but we've now found that you are predisposed to Alzheimer's disease. Totally unexpected. That's the problem, these incidental findings.
1: Welcome to Pomegranate, podcast of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. I'm Mick Cavazzini, and this is the second of two episodes on the application of genomics in clinical practice. Last time we talked about how whole genome sequencing can be used to diagnose rare and poorly understood conditions, as it allows a wider net to be cast with each new diagnostic hypothesis. Healthy people might even adopt lifestyle changes and interventions on the basis of inherited risk. But risk is a slippery concept. Only the classic Mendelian conditions manifest predictably from the presence of a mutation presumably because there is little redundancy in the biochemical role these gene products play. And BRCA1 mutations, for example, are ominous because they confer a 65% lifetime risk of breast cancer. But most genetic associations we know of have a much weaker influence. What do you advise people who carry a variant of small effect, or parents expecting a child with one of these known markers? Clinical geneticist Michael Gabbett of the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital.
2: Um, I guess one of the tenets of of clinical genetics really is to take a position where you provide the information, help people process that information, but how they perceive the risk is something that is very individual. So certainly I've had people, when I've said the chance of this recurring again is 25%, they'll say, oh, is that all? I don't know if it's that they focus on the positive, that that three and four chance of it not occurring is actually the positive that they like to focus on. Conversely, I've had people where I've said, look, the chance is as close to zero um, as possible. I uh, can put a number on it, but it's certainly less than 1%. But they are absolutely petrified of something recurring. Then they'd like to take any steps possible to prevent that. And it's good to have an understanding of your patient's background. Um, if you can come up with analogies that uh, I guess are visually um, something that they can relate to quite easily more so than if you use some esoteric example. And I try to put them in a a comparative fashion. I guess one of the the great analogies I always use in my counselling is there's no such thing as a risk-free life. I could drive home from work today um, and get killed by a semi-trailer. You know, risk is inherent in life, risk is inherent in having babies. I can never take away risk.
1: Associate Professor Christine Barlow-Stewart, Director of the Master of Genetic Counselling Program at the University of Sydney.
0: Risk perception is very personal. I often say to my students, you have a 10% chance of winning the lottery. Stand up if you think that's a good chance. They all stand up. You have a 10% chance of your child having a problem. They're not often the same people who think that's a risk. If they have experience of a particular condition, their perception of that risk is going to be different to someone who's just read about it. People don't are not necessarily numerically literate. You can't use percentages. You've got to present that number in a whole different way, perhaps using the 100-person figure, and it takes time.
1: These discussions about risk are going to become more nuanced as the findings from genetic epidemiology research trickle down to the clinic. One sensitive tool is the Genome-Wide Association Study, or GWAS for short. These are large-scale case control studies in which researchers fish out thousands of single nucleotide polymorphisms that are found in the human population. These common variants, known as SNPs, are not like the pathogenic mutations we've talked about until now. SNPs are usually harmless silent mutations, or fall outside protein-coding regions entirely. But they sometimes associate with a slight increase in disease risk perhaps because they sit within an important regulatory sequence or segregate with some unknown causal factor nearby. Research is only just beginning to make sense of these variants, says David Thomas, director of the Kinghorn Cancer Centre and the Cancer
3: Division at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. A SNP is a change of a variant that is quite common typically amongst people. Um, Perhaps more than 5% of the population might have that SNP. And, but the effect size is quite small, so many people, you know, ask themselves, what's the point of a genome-wide association study in terms of deriving clinically useful conclusions from something which has a 1.2-fold increased risk, a 20% increased risk, for example? But the reality is, these things don't operate as singletons; they're not lone wolves. They hunt in packs. And because they're so common, for individuals who have, say, not one disease-associated SNP, but maybe five at once, all of a sudden, the cumulative total risk for that person goes from 1.2-fold to maybe 8-fold. And we certainly see that in breast cancer. There's been studies, including Australian studies, actually, by Paul James in Melbourne, which have shown that polygenic risk score that is using the genome-wide association study results and aggregating all of those, the risk is phenotypically indistinguishable from carrying a BRCA1 mutation. For the woman concerned, it makes no difference whether you've got BRCA1 or five of these nasty SNPs together. And that's a really interesting thing, which I think is to, still to enter into clinical practice in terms of risk stratification, but the data are unambiguous.
2: I guess commercial testing for these normal variants has been available for many years now. You know, you could hop on the internet and, and they, these companies use what information is available in the literature to look at your risk profile for you know dementia or heart disease um now as our understanding of normal variants increases that will become more powerful but we're looking at sort of relative risks of you know 1.5 times more likely to develop disease x and if the you know background incidence of the disease is low then 1.5 times a small number is still a small number so we i guess us clinical geneticists aren't big fans of um, these commercial tests um certainly next generation sequencing will be able to find all these normal variants and as our knowledge improves, then we should be able to design algorithms to give a, a risk figure at the end of the day. But there's still a lot we don't know.
3: So, here's something that might happen over the coming years. Typically, people come into a cancer, a familial cancer centre, because they know that people in their family have had cancer. In a way, you're primed. You know, you've seen your sister, your mother get breast cancer, now you're worried about breast cancer. But increasingly, we're going to be discovering genetic causes that are not going to be uh, dominant and Mendelian in their transmission patterns, which means there may not be a family history. And it might be quite different in terms of clinical genetics practice to give people information which they weren't expecting because they've had no kind of conditioning for that.
1: Whole genome sequencing allows you to screen for every genetic risk factor in the book. But the problem of casting such a wide net is that you might detect disease markers you weren't expecting. How such incidental findings should be dealt with is one of the main ethical issues with the technology. The question becomes even more fraught in the context of prenatal screening, since fetal DNA can now be sampled non-invasively from maternal blood. That's
0: the problem these incidental findings, the chance is not high, oh, one to two percent, but but it can happen. There will be enormous uncertainty generated from that because of our still limited capacity to interpret what we find. Even if we find something and we know that it can cause a problem, it may not.
1: And, and is that a risk you expect? Explain to the patient that okay we're, we're looking for this but we might turn up other things do you really want to go down that path
0: yes that's a conversation we have because the consent forms now have that on them do you want to know this other information so people have a choice um, if that's what the patient wants some patients will say I want to know everything and I think that increasingly that choice is not given. Everyone has an ultrasound. And it's a test. It's a prenatal test. People don't think it's a prenatal test because they think they're just getting the picture of the baby. But it's a test. And because it's a blood test and they have zillions of blood tests in pregnancy, more and more there is the expectation that you will do these tests. And I think you, you have to tell them that this is a special blood test. But not everybody then wants to go down that path. Making a decision to terminate a pregnancy, for example, is the most difficult decision anyone can ever make. But if we're going to be doing whole genome sequencing, we're going to find these babies are at risk for adult onset conditions like Alzheimer's disease and breast cancer and bowel cancer in, in a fetus. And, you know, we as a society... Need to have the conversation about how appropriate is this and should there be limits on the technology.
1: Genetic pathologist Professor Leslie Burnett is more confident that systems are in place to avoid incidental findings from coming to light.
4: Well, I'm Leslie Burnett and I'm the chief medical officer at Genome One uh, at the Garvan Institute of Medical Research. If we are searching for a narrow diagnosis and we know what, they are looking for, we will adjust the bioinformatics filters so we never see these things. We are, in effect, going in with deliberate blinkers consciously applied because we know that either the requesting clinician has asked us to look no further or the patient has not consented for us to look further. But for more difficult cases where uh, the net necessarily has to be cast wider, we will find unexpected findings. We'll have to evaluate them and decide whether they're relevant. Look, the issue of incidental findings is very important. Some seek it as an issue to be feared and avoided. Others see it as an issue to be welcomed because it's if they're present, it's a risk that the patient has and they should know about it. And uh, this was uh, brought to a head uh, uh, two or three years ago by the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. which Uh, I think very bravely put out a list of 56 uh, important findings that they claim that one is professionally obliged to search for and include whether or not had been requested because these were sufficiently important, uh, would have an impact on the patient's life, Uh, you could do something about them, therefore... Don't you have an obligation to inform the patient and the the clinician? Now, this caused much controversy and is still debated around the world, and I think I respect them and support them for having made the statement, but it probably didn't quite capture the consensus of views of others working in the field around the world. And the current position is that this list is widely respected, but you don't have an obligation... To include it one should seek the patient's consent as to whether they wish to know about or not and one shouldn't go searching for it just because one can now it's not a black and white thing I've had my genome sequenced Uh, I was one of the early adopters uh, because I was uh, doing this as an experiment to see how I would react I discussed this around the dining room table with my family and uh, my view was I want to know because if there's something I can do about it well I'd be foolish to close my eyes it's not going to go away and my wife looked at me and she said, no, if, if you are going to be mad enough to have it, under no circumstances tell me anything. And then my daughter, who works in a similar field, uh, she said, oh, you'd be crazy not to know. Look, if you find anything, you have an obligation to tell me because I share half my genes with you.
3: So, actually, this is an interesting point. So you cannot consent someone in an informed way to the full implications of a whole genome test. Medical oncologist David Thomas once again. You know, to consent somebody to the full spectrum of human disorders, which might be identified or for which the information might be relevant, would take far longer than is clinically feasible. Knowledge is changing so rapidly that you could consent at one point in time and become irrelevant 12 months later. So I think what you're consenting people to understand is that the information is changing rapidly and that we will use our best judgment, clinical judgment, and always putting the patient's best interests at the forefront of our decision-making, elect to return those results which we feel we have a duty of care to return to the patient whether or not they express a certainty that they don't want to receive that information or not. And, and the reason I say that is there's quite a lot of literature about people making a firm decision at one point in time and changing it the next. And the last thing you want to do is take a result which might change the course of a person's life and not return it to them because of a decision which couldn't possibly, in retrospect, be called informed uh, maybe some years ago. And, of course, if it's not relevant to, the, to you, or the subject, it's relevant to children and sisters and brothers and so forth. And dealing with uncertainty um, is actually not an unusual feature of medical practice. You know, When you get a chest X-ray because somebody's got some chest pain and you see an incidental spot in it, people don't panic and think we needed to have consented people that they, you know, we might identify a spot. You just deal with it because you, you've got a duty of care to the patient to do what's in their best interest. Those things are part and parcel of the way clinical practice were evolved. And I think it's the same thing will apply with genomic information.
1: The apprehension some clinicians feel towards genomic testing will change with time, says clinical geneticist Michael Gabbett.
2: You know, with anything new, you always have to tread a little bit carefully. And there are certainly some traps I've seen generalists fall into um, and do you know quite a bit of damage by not providing adequate pre-test counselling or Giving erroneous interpretation to families. But that, I guess, is all a function of not being familiar with the test. Um, a good analogy um, I think of is um, HIV. So certainly when I went through medical school, for someone to have an HIV test was a very big deal. There had to be um, significant uh, pre-test counselling and then to give the results, um, it was all very planned, you know, quiet room, one-on-one. Now HIV testing is done quite I would say willy-nilly, simply because people are more accustomed to knowing what HIV is, but also our ability to treat it is much, much better. So it's the test itself hasn't necessarily changed, but um, the meaning of the test has changed and our familiarity has changed. And I think genetic testing is um, something similar. With next-generation sequencing, there are a lot of caveats to the test. They are still a little bit special, but I have seen certain genetic tests over the years becoming less special as people get more familiar with them.
1: Another concern about collecting a person's entire genome sequence is what then happens to the information. Who has a right to gain access to it, and what kind of decisions will it influence? Christine Barlow-Stewart was a founder of the Genetic Discrimination Project, aimed at dealing with some of these questions.
0: So what we're talking about is being treated differently by a third party like insurer or employer, um, access to... A right that you would have normally had has been changed on the basis of your genotype rather than anything that you were presenting with. And so we investigated that, um, and we certainly found in life insurance, that's where there was the greatest concern. In many other countries, life insurers can't ask you about your genetic information. Here, if you know your genetic test result, you have to tell them. Have you had a genetic test? On every form and we got access to all of the applications that were disclosed where a genetic test was disclosed and basically most of the results were negative but that's because people are not really disclosing I think the fear
1: and so you're still pushing to have that requirement removed from the, the...
0: no look I, I think it's a problem if we start saying that a genetic test is different than a, any other medical test Um, but what I am pushing for is that if it is disclosed the interpretation has to be evidence-based and if it if the data isn't there they shouldn't be using it and so my message is use your genetic counsellor use your genetic clinician as your advocate if you are concerned challenge the insurance company
1: Probably the most advanced area of genomics is oncology, where more than 140 genes have been identified that can be involved in tumorogenesis. Every cancer is, in a sense, a unique experiment in cell regulation. Some of the mutations are inherited in the germline and set down a baseline risk profile. But on top of this, a perfect storm of spontaneous somatic mutations must brew before the tissue veers off onto an aberrant developmental pathway.
3: It's an important distinction. The distinction between tumour testing, looking for genetic signatures in a tumour that reflect the changes that have occurred in that cell or the population of cells that allow it to form, and testing of the stuff that we inherit from our mother and father that we call the germline, which we typically measure in blood, which is actually a tissue in its own right. And, of course, the big problem of genomics now in this era is not mapping genetic variants but interpreting them. There's stuff that's bleeding obvious, There's a whole lot of stuff that's grey. But a lot of what's driving genomics into clinical practice is actually this tumour testing question because think about the risk benefit. If you're going to recommend something as radical as mastectomy or removal of the ovaries or potentially drug prophylactic treatments, you need to have a very high standard, a bar, in order to intervene in somebody who is well. So you're talking about predictive testing, making a statement about someone's future that is so strong that they would effectively undergo surgery to mitigate that risk. But if you've got somebody who's dying from cancer, that risk-benefit ratio about what you call significant
1: is very different. Testing of breast cancer biopsies on a 21-gene panel can reveal how aggressive they are likely to be and which patients can be safely spared the discomforts of chemotherapy and still at the cusp of research translation, are findings about whether cancers will be sensitive to conventional drugs or to radical new therapies instead.
3: Most of the targeted therapies that we've been using over the past 20 years to treat cancer, ultimately, by time, but don't eradicate the last cancer cell, they become resistant. So David Botel has been one of the world's leading researchers in ovarian cancer, and I'm using genomics to study it and um, he put out a very important paper describing um, genetic changes that predict for sensitivity to cisplatin, resistance to cisplatin, and which became mechanisms for acquiring resistance. And I think that's going to be an increasingly important uh, aspect of cancer treatments. These drugs are very expensive, and they don't cure people in many cases. I should say up until the advent of the immunotherapies, where the C word has become tantalisingly close on the horizon. So the immunotherapies, which are really cool developments in cancer drug therapies because they harness our immune system to recognize the cancer cell and eradicate it. Those drugs appear to work in a way that is in some sense related to their mutational burden. And some of the ideas behind this are not that you're targeting a particular mutation in a particular gene, but you're targeting all these new proteins that are generated by the mutations There are enough new epitopes that the immune system can get hold of and recognise and can form the basis of an effective immune response. So melanoma and lung cancer are the two uh, flagship diseases where the immunotherapies have had enormous impact. Tumours which are just screaming white noise. You end up with a thousand mutations per tumour cell, and many of them are passenger mutations. They're just part of the, the broken machinery or the very high exposure to carcinogens. But at the other end of the spectrum you have cancers that affect children and young people that are eerily quiet, mutationally. These are things that we really understand very poorly. Clinical practice has increasingly become a really weird blend between received knowledge, the sort of canon of knowledge of medicine, and uh, the cutting edge of what we're learning through large-scale clinical studies. There's a really important paper by Roselle Kersrock, the head of phase one at MD Anderson, probably the largest cancer center in the world. And she did a meta analysis of phase one studies where we're trying drugs for the first time. We're not really after getting a signal response, we're trying to work out how to use the drugs, use the right dose, and the right schedule. So, in that meta analysis of 360 phase one studies, she asked three questions. She said, what is the benefit to patients of a chemotherapy used in that setting? And it was 5%. 5% of patients had something like a response to chemotherapy in a phase one study. And that's what we've known for a long time. It's really quite dismal. And then she asked a second question, which was kind of cool. She asked, what about a targeted therapy, but not paying any attention to that, whether that mutation is present in a tumour, just trying it? And the result was 5% which means if you develop a fancy new drug on its own, it may be fancier and newer, but unless you use it rationally, it doesn't work. And then she asked the killer question, which is, if you connect a targeted drug to a target within a tumour, the notion of precision medicine, the right patient, right drug, the response rate was 43%. Now, in a phase one, where you're using the drugs for the first time, what that tells you is that human science and reason actually does work, even when you don't have empiric historical evidence. And that's why I think, as knowledge is accelerating, as this data comes out, there needs to be an impetus to bring science into the lives of patients who don't have the time to wait for Phase three studies to emerge. There needs to be increased capacity to offer people an alternative to a Phase one cytotoxic. And, you know, that's the future, I think. And that's where genomics comes in, because it represents an enormous advance in our ability to identify those biomarkers. Now, it's important that people understand that getting the test does not necessarily mean your tumour is going to melt away. You have to then get a hold of a drug. Those drugs are often not available. They may be available in trials. They may be available overseas. But let me put that into clinical perspective. So when I see a patient with metastatic soft tissue sarcoma and I offer them the frontline therapy that the government pays for the response rate to that is uh, 18 to 23%. And um, usually lasts two, three months, and then the tumours progress. And that's what I do as part of clinical practice. The likelihood of identifying a therapeutic target with a panel test is about the same order of magnitude, between 10 and 20%, depending upon the panel. And if I'd run out of my doxorubicins and my iphosphamides, I wouldn't think it unreasonable to get a molecular test for a more rational pairing of a drug to a target. I have patients who've got advanced cancer, for example, for whom I can quite reasonably say, look, we don't have a treatment right now, but the pace of knowledge is such that within 12 months there could be something turn up. And look, 10 years ago that would not have been plausible.
1: That's all for this pomegranate series on genomics for the generalist. Please go back and listen to the first episode if you missed it. Thanks to Christine Barlow-Stewart, Leslie Burnett, Michael Gabbett and David Thomas for their contributions. The views expressed are their own and may not represent those of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. For resources mentioned in the podcast or to claim CPD credits for listening, visit the pomegranate website at racp.edu.au forward slash You'll also find our email address if you have any feedback, and please share the story around using the hashtag RACPPod. I'm Mick Cavazzini, and I hope you've enjoyed the program.